HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program was brought to you by Eat on North. Eat on North is a casual restaurant where honest, uncomplicated food is served without pretension. Find Eat on North at hotelonnorth.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're going to be talking with a few guys from the Chef's Collaborative um, who all have independent careers besides that, as you probably guess. Um, everybody does Chef's Collaborative as kind of a labor of love. Um, uh, so we'll be talking to, about meat today because uh, they have an event going on in Chicago um, just coming up. Uh, I think it starts tomorrow, actually. And they'll be talking about how meat matters in the context of the restaurant industry and also some other um, sort of new focuses on the meat industry. So um, because of our somewhat uh, limited studio um, uh, applications here, we're having to break up my three guests into two parts. So my first one, of course, is my my dear friend, Adam Danforth. Adam, you don't mind if I call you that, do you? <laughs> no, no, no. Um, Adam, in case you've never heard of him, he's kind of like a traveling butcher. Like, I have never met anyone who was able to make himself into, like, sort of the ubiquitous, you know, Scarlet Pimpernel of butchery. But he is also <laughs> the, the James Beard Award-winning author of Butchering. It's, it's two volumes. Beef is in one volume. Poultry, rabbit, lamb, goat, and pork is in the other. Um, and Adam is also a board member of Chef's Collaborative. And he's a, a major draw in this event called Meat Matters. When does that kick off? Is that tomorrow? Am I right about that? I should have written it down. Yeah, no, it's tomorrow. Um, I do a, I'm doing an old goat butchering demo from 6 to 8 o'clock at Local Food. And then proceeding after that is a tasting with several notable chefs from around the Chicago area. And there are some really notable chefs from the Chicago area, including Rick Bayless, who was the founding member of the Chef's Collaborative. Who else is going to be cooking for that? I should have written all this down, but I figured it would be good um, fodder for conversation. <laughs> oh, Paul from Big Jones is, you know, another right? chef's collaborative. And he'll be on the show after you. Yeah. Um, Rob, who you'll talk to again um, later in the program, I think will be cooking some interesting stuff. Johnny from The Kitchen will also be cooking. Oh, cool. Um, 
and I, you know, other than and, and and it goes on and on, but I'm actually not sure. The other people I haven't actually met before. Oh, I'm so amazed. I'm to connecting with some new faces. Yeah, I bet you are. So, Adam, let's let's. Why, first of all, why are you butchering an old goat? Like, I know you you're particularly eloquent on the subject of choosing older animals. Why, why are they a good thing? Well, when I. A lot of the work that I do ends up confronting stigmas, and of course, as you know, there are a vast amount of stigmas in the meat industry, so you have to pick and choose which ones you're really going to tackle, and and a couple of the ones that I tend to tackle is one, slaughtering, and the stigmas that surround slaughtering, and then then also the stigmas that surround um, flavor compared to tenderness in meat. And uh-huh. and one of the things that I describe to people is, um, is simply put, there is an inverse, more or less an inverse relationship between tenderness and flavor. So when we look at tenderness as the be-all and end-all of quality meat, as we do here so often in America, yeah. deprioritizing ten- or flavor as, as a quality. And of course, in the end, what we want is something that's going to taste good. And where flavor comes from, flavor comes from things that have to do with activity of muscles, it has to do with the age of the animal, and it has to do with diverse diet. And the, you know, those, the, you know, animal activity and working the muscles is one of the things that develops flavor. Uh-huh. It also develops as the animal gets older. And, and if you have an animal that has diverse access to food, meaning on a pasture or in the woods or within its natural environment, those are the things that produce flavor. And the things that produce tenderness are the opposite. It's a lack of movement, which could mean confinement, quickened growth, and younger age, which could mean just killing at younger animals at, a, at an earlier age, or subtherapeutic antibiotics causing quickened growth, and then also uh, a, a reduced, reduced spectrum of flavor in feed, so when you're thinking about grain finish and stuff like that. So when we prioritize tenderness, I let people know that you know, you're playing into the hand of, of a corporate meat industry that kills younger and younger and makes them grow faster and faster. But when we start to prioritize flavor, we actually make an animal welfare decision on top of making a decision that allows us to actually produce better food with better ingredients to begin with. And so when I work with something like an old goat, not only do people think goat generally often isn't worth eating, um, I mean, something that I think is starting to change due to also a lot of the work that's being done by Heritage Foods. And, yeah, um, for sure. But, you know, so GOAT is starting to sort of like change in in at least awareness of it being such a, a popular ingredient. I think a lot of people think GOAT is going to be actually, you know, quote-unquote gamier than sheep or lamb would be, but the reality is that it's a much milder, sweeter meat, and mm-hmm. people are coming to realize that. And then I work with an older GOAT because it allows me to also discuss the merits of eating older animals and how flavor develops over age and, and things like that. So it's a, it's a you know, I, I, I often work with um, old sheep or old goats. I did a seven-year-old ram two days ago in Santa Rosa for the Livestock Conservancy. I did an 11-year-old cull ewe in North Carolina two weeks ago. Um, and, and these are all animals that people would generally relegate to grinding and nothing else. And so what I do is I butcher it. I talk to people about how with the right kind of grazing, the right kind of slaughter, the right kind of aging, and the right kind of butchering, these things all come together to actually make incredible meat that can be served in any of the same ways that really lamb or even kid goat, as people have come to, come to know, um, can be. And then I extract specific muscles throughout the body that, that show that, and we cook them on site really quickly, and then people are able to taste them from all over the body. So it's mm. an experience that... 
you can't really get in any other demo or any other situation because you get access to muscles and cuts that you generally would just never see um, in a butcher shop or on a menu or anything else like that. So for people who are consumers, it's a really revelatory experience of understanding that maybe they could be looking or asking for something different from retailers or whoever they're buying meat from. And for culinary professionals, it's then something where it's sort of like, okay, I can actually get more out of this carcass because I can get smaller cuts from individual muscles and focus on their qualities more and actually don't need to take an entire goat shoulder or an entire kid goat and, you know, braise the, the whole thing or stew it or do whatever they're going to do with it. Uh-huh. Interesting. But doesn't it cost the farmer a lot lo- more to keep an animal longer on feed? I mean, even if you're raising it for a niche market, it seems to me that the economics don't really support uh, using older animals for food. What do you say to that? Um, well, definitely if we're talking about single-purpose animals, that would be the case. And single-purpose animals are animals that are only exclusively raised for one reason. And when we're talking about meat animals, that would be only meat. So if we're talking about lamb or we're talking about steers or we're talking about, you know, most pigs or things like that, those are all raised for the specific purpose of providing one thing in the end, which is meat. And right. that's an expensive input-output scenario. So this is a very new idea in the scope of, of the, the, and how long we've been consuming meat and even having livestock is the idea of a single-purpose animal. So mm-hmm. it's really just the advent of the Industrial Revolution that's offered that, mostly post-World War II. And, um, and so when we look at an animal like an older animal, let's say like a cull ewe, which is a female sheep that um, has been on the farm, let's say, for six years and has provided lambs every year. Right already providing a, a secondary purpose because it's provided offspring as part of its offset of its investment. If we're talking about dairy animals, you're talking about dairy goats, you know, they come to the end of their term, they've already provided dairy or they've already provided fiber, maybe they're a sheep or other things mm-hmm. like that. So when we talk, begin to talk about dual or even triple purpose animals, it offsets a lot of that economic strain to actually make back all your money simply on the selling of the meat itself. Right. And the reality right now, <clears throat> excuse me, is for Older animals, most of them get sold at auction. So the farmers themselves are really never going to get what the animal could even potentially be worth because at auction, if you're raising, let's say, a heritage breed or a really beautiful animal, you're still competing just with normal commercial prices. You're not getting a large markup for what you've put into that. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I know around the country that people who are having to sell off purebred heritage animals for, you know, 70 to buck 50 a pound live weight for sheep and goats, and, I mean, it's, a, it's incredibly cheap. And if we translate that into what a carcass weight would be, then you're looking at, you know, a, a buck to $2 a pound, basically, carcass <laughs> weight, which is exceedingly cheap. So what we can do is we can create a market for older animals, which then would allow farmers to actually focus on finishing them appropriately for meat at the end of their term or purpose on the, on the farm, uh-huh. and then also give those farmers a better a better amount of money for the animal in the end because they've created a better product, but it's still most likely going to be more affordable than the the single-purpose counterpart of, let's say, lamb or steer or things like that. That's fascinating, Adam. So glad we had this talk. So um, so your part of this is to sort of encourage chefs more than consumers, but chefs to um, consider working with farmers on using these older animals that have already had their purpose on the farm um, in order to sort of 
basically double their value. And then the chefs have something more interesting to work with. Um, How do you see that playing out with the consumer market? That's kind of a hard story to tell. If I were a chef, I would have trouble figuring out how to tell that succinctly. Do you have a do you have a soundbite for that? Well, I'm I'm not always sure that it has to be told in that way. Mm-hmm. I if you're working you know if you're working with a protein like goat meat or sheep meat yeah um, I mean you know however it, <clears throat> in the end when it shows up on a menu you are able to describe it sort of in the way that you want to so if you're just talking about goat you don't need to go into my lengthy you know diatribe about it being <laughs> an old goat and why. You can just put that it's goat meat, and and these days when I do events that are even coupled, let's say, with a restaurant that has to do with goat, I mean the response is, is overwhelming. I mean to, around the country, people have sold out on goat tasting menus and yeah. that have been attached to events that I've done and other things, and and so people are turning towards goat these days, which is really great. And actually, in some butcher shops I know where they're having trouble even moving lambs. They've been like, you know, if I had goat in here, it would sell immediately. And so I think, you know, one of the things with goat is that it's all called goat. You know, we can talk about kid right. goat, but, you know, when you're putting, like, when you're when you're saying kids, it's also like, you know, you're working against something there. So, you, you know, yeah. just goat meat is goat meat, and it's, and it's an easier sell, I think, in that regard. And if you choose to sell the story in a restaurant, maybe through the server, when it seems appropriate, then, then that seems like a great idea. But the base product you're going to be working with is going to be a better quality and more flavorful than, let's say, the four-month-old kid goat that you may have normally felt like you needed to work with because you're afraid of there being, you know, too much flavor or a problem with texture or these uh-huh. other things that are usually the stigmas with older animals. Right. Now, with sheep, it becomes a little bit more challenging because we have the term mutton, and everyone gets to turn away from mutton because, uh, you know, mostly also post-World War II when we had a lot of mutton that was sent in cans and it was part of rations and that it's also... And, of course, it's going to taste bad if people come back and they don't want to eat it ever again. And, yeah. and then you also associate mutton with, with peasantry and lower-class food like that. So there's, you know, there's stigmas that relate to that as well, and I, and I encourage people whatever they feel they need to in order to make it work and create the dialogue. And that, if that means calling it lamb on a menu, like, I don't feel like that's an incredible sort of, like, deceitful move by a chef because most people assume that lamb – is sheep meat anyway, and even the lamb that most people are getting, when they get it commercially, if it's ground lamb, yeah. um, most of that is actually mutton to begin with. And, and these days, the lenience towards allowing older animals to be considered lamb is getting pushed further and further, so even in commercial industries. So I think, you know, you choose what is going to allow you to get an entry point and begin the dialogue, and, and I think that's it. That sounds great. Adam, we're going to we're going to leave it there from you and go move on to a commercial break and we'll be right back with uh Paul Fairback, uh who is the chef owner of uh, Big Jones in Chicago and uh Rob Levitt, who runs a butcher uh in butcher shop in Chicago. Adam, thanks a lot. Have a great time today uh this week with your event. It sounds really good. I'm sorry I'm going to miss it. Hope to see you soon. Okay. Always good to talk to you, Katie. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye.
Hi, I'm Brian Alberg, and I'm the executive chef at Eat on North in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts. Eat on North in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts is a casual restaurant where good, honest, uncomplicated food is served to our guests. Our restaurant is part of the hotel called Hotel on North, the newly opened boutique hotel in downtown Pittsfield. We source local ingredients from our neighboring farms and offer an all-day dining menu of flavorful American cuisine for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and on weekends we serve brunch. Our oyster bar serves up delicious shellfish and oyster samplers until 11 p.m. Check out our menu at eatonnorth.com and follow us on Instagram. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, we're going to uh, continue the show with another guest, uh, Paul Faraback. Paul is the James Beard Award-winning chef and co-owner of Big Jones in Chicago. He, too, is a board member of Chef's Collaborative and uh, obviously part of the, the program for Meat Matters, an event that will take place over the next two days in Chicago. Um, welcome to the show, Paul. We're, we're trying to get Rob on the line, too, but while we're waiting for Rob to pick up, because um, we were a little bit sort of thrown off by the, by the phone situation with Adam um, and the fact that we can't really accommodate three people at once, um, okay. but anyway, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. And thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, so give us a little bit of a, I mean, we talked to, to Adam a bit about uh, butchering old animals and why that's valuable. But um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about sort of Chef's Collaborative and why they're hosting this Meat Matters event? Like, what is it supposed to mean? What is this for? Well, Chef, Chef's Collaborative was founded, uh, I think, about almost 25 years ago now. Yeah. Um, and Rick Bayless was was one of the founding members, um, and so it's really special for us to have him mm. with us tomorrow night. And th- basically, it was founded as a group of chefs who looked at the American food landscape there in the early '90s and decided that it just wasn't good enough, and that we could do better. And they started this organization as a network of chefs and food professionals 
Um, and it's since grown to include a lot of producers and uh, also just culinary enthusiasts. Yeah, and, like me. And, uh, and journalists. <laughs> and, you know, what we do is we get together and we, put, and we stage events to raise awareness of different issues pertaining to our food system. I mean, this one is, is, going to, is going to raise awareness and educate people about issues regarding meat production, uh, which is pr- probably the most complicated of, of all aspects of our food system. We, you know, we do periodically do dinners, which we call trash fish dinners. Yep. Well, which is actually kind of a, you know, a lot of people don't like that word, and I actually don't like that word, but uh, the point is to, be, uh, is to be provocative because we want to challenge people's perception of, of fish that they may think, um, they think may not make good food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and with this Meat Matters, again, we're going to try to challenge people's perceptions of what they think makes good food. Um, <clears throat> so so you're you know, doing... we, do a, we do a summit every year. The next one is in right. Brooklyn in April. Yeah. Um, and uh, w- at the summit, we get 400 uh, chefs, food professionals, and writers from around the country come together, and we sort of deal with all of these issues in a in a big symposium format. And those are and those are always fun. Oh yeah. Specifically, meat matters though. We want we want to discuss um, issues regarding the production of animals for food because if it's done right, it can actually be a very beneficial thing for the environment. It can be a very beneficial thing for human health. Uh, but most often in our food system now, it's actually done in a way that's very destructive to the environment and also very detrimental to human health. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do... I do <laughs> I, I have a few quarrels with that kind of reasoning, but um, I did read your essay, by the way, on your um, on your restaurant website, which I really enjoyed and thought was very thoughtful and and uh, and interesting. But um, I, I happen to be of the belief that the food system, that the meat production system we have in this country, which we are rapidly exporting to every other major meat production facility in the rest of the world, is is not going to go away. And the oh, only it just gets worse and worse. Yeah, but like. I mean, I think that there the to me the answer is to improve that system, um, not to to just discount it and not work with those people to try to make it better. But that that's another discussion you and I can have, um, Paul. <laughs> Although, actually, we are going to talk about it in a little while. But uh, right now, we have Rob Levitt on the line as well. So, Rob, why don't you um, give us a thumbnail of you, of yourself. You are the former, a former chef and now the owner of The Butcher and Larder, Chicago's first sustainable whole animal butcher shop, and now part of Chicago's premier local food hub, otherwise known as Local Foods. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks for joining us. Oh, very happy to be here. And um, when you guys do decide to pick up that conversation, I'd love to be a part of it. <laughs> okay, well, maybe we'll do that in the, in the next few minutes. But um, I wanted to get into um, sort of, you know, you you are running a whole animal butcher shop, um, Rob. And, um, Paul, I should ask you if in your restaurant, do you do whole animal butchery as well? Well, we do whole hogs. Uh-huh. And how do you? I, th- I think if I if I can jump in real quick, sure. Um, I think on 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 Paul's behalf and on behalf of other people who are like minded with the two of us and um, and have the same the same ideas in mind. I, I to me, whole animal doesn't necessarily mean you buy a whole cow and butcher it and run the whole thing on your menu. Right. If you're a chef like Paul, then if you can butcher a whole hog, that's fantastic. But it also means it's a term that we sometimes call instead of whole animal, we call it whole farmer. Whereas you can 
you can work with a farmer who raises animals correctly. And um, like when I had my restaurant, I used to say, I used to just ask my beef farmers what pieces and parts they had that no one else was buying. Right. And that's what I would cook. And that, to me, extends the idea of whole animals to include people who are doing things the right way, but maybe don't have the space or the know-how to, to butcher a, a whole beef sure. or whatever it might be. So, you know, when you when you think of it in those terms, it kind of changes the conversation just enough. Yeah, I, I love that idea. And and so are you able to extend that uh, to your shop as well? Like, say you don't want to necessarily buy a whole cow for your butcher shop, but you do want to buy maybe, you know, a stack of, of uh, I don't know, shoulders instead of buying, you know, the sirloin or the middle meats or something like that. Um, can you do that too? You work with your farmers. Is that like something that you... You make a deal with them in advance. Can you set a price? I mean, it's, it's kind of. You know, I'm reading this book about food trading commodities called Bet the Farm. Did you guys read that? Uh-huh. I haven't, but I'll look for it. Oh, it's really, so- really interesting, and it talks all about sort of, you know, commodity buying. And in a way, you guys almost need to to sort of emulate that to a certain extent in terms of working with farmers to guarantee them that they will move the entire animal and they will move that animal at a price that they find acceptable and that you find acceptable. I don't know. Just something to so, think about. But um, the way the way we are able to deal with that, and this is what's really, really wonderful about local foods, is that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe I can't Maybe I can't buy as many whole animals as I know that I can sell in my retail store. Yeah. Um, but we as a company are, I would say we are 99% whole animal. Um, that means there's a few, a few situations where we need to talk to our farmers and say, you know, if you have extra of this piece or that piece, we'll take them all because we have an order to fill. But uh-huh. well, we, what winds up happening with us is that if I, like we, we, we tell our beef farmer as a company we need this many whole beef, and two or three of them come in whole to me, and my team cuts them up and sells them and, and does other things with them. But then the rest of those animals, I talk to the buyers, um, and we decide how they're going to be cut. So we know that uh-huh. the restaurants are going to take all the steaks, and right. we are going to sell this much ground beef and this many roasts and this many short ribs. And then I say, well, I will take... You know, I will take all the hanger steaks, and I will take all the all the chuck flaps, and all the sirloin flaps, and all of these sort of mm-hmm. odd cuts that come off of these animals, but don't come off in any kind of volume. And I know that I can take those cuts and sell them through our our public market, our, our retail right. counter. Um, and and that way, we we don't like we can buy parts, but we're buying them from whole animals that the company's buying. So it winds up right. being a very sort of sustainable model to where we can continue to commit to, to buying these whole animals. Right, right. It sounds to me like, I mean, I think the Meat Hook does that as well, the um, the, the store in Brooklyn. Do you guys know that place? Tom Milan's sure, place? I, um, I actually uh, spent about a week working with those guys before I opened my original shop. Yeah, when, I, it would Tom's seem like they would be a good out, model. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, one of the things that you're doing, though, is you're butchering an older goat with Adam and butchering an older pig uh, an older heritage breed pig, as a matter of fact. Yeah. What? What? Yep, she was. Uh, I think she. He said she was uh, three years old. Mm-hmm. And so, why would a farmer keep a pig that long? Because Adam and I were talking about sort of, um, you know, most of the time it's animals that have another purpose. You know, dual purpose mm-hmm. animals like for fiber or for you know cleaning foraging, cleaning up your woods or whatever. I mean, I imagine that's what you keep a goat around for or for dairy. Um, In the case of a pig, why would you keep a pig for three years? 
Um, I think the most common reason, if, it, if it's a female pig that has been, um, you know, very successfully having lots of very happy litters. I see. Yeah, then of course. You let her, you let her keep doing that. If it's, right. a, if it's a pig that has a history of, you know, having lots of healthy piglets and she's a good mother and mm. she, you know, she produces, then over the course of however many years you let her keep having babies. Right. And that's then when, once that year, slows yeah. down or if they start to, you know, if they start to show signs of age or for whatever reason, if it's more... It's in the pig's best interest for her to, you know, to go to slaughter, then, you know, then that's what you do. I'm not sure we could um, call that in her best interest, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Like it's, In it's, our best interest, it's, maybe. It's, 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 sometimes it's not a matter of whether or not they're producing. Sometimes it's, yeah. you know, this, we can let this pig live out its life, but it's like having a pet. You know, we no, can I let understand. This, this cat or this dog or this pig live out their life, but if they're going to be miserable or if it's looking like they're going to get sick or, you know, then, you know, it's in the best interest of the animal. To, sure. To, no, I'm, to, I'm to teasing you. I'm totally teasing you. Um, <laughs> and that, this is why I don't keep a pig, because I would never be able to kill it. I mean, I might have sure. one as a pet sometime in my future, but I, I would never. And I love pork, by the way. Let me see. I'm, I'm a card-carrying carnivore. Don't worry. Um, do you think <laughs> that chefs will worried. start asking farmers for older animals? Like when we were talking about the value, the sort of relationship of flavor to, to tenderness, um, you know, is that something that chefs are hoping to promote? Or is that just a sort of a demonstration issue to make people think more about <clears throat> what their meat is and the system that it's coming from? Uh, I, I think there's, I, I think there's a lot of ways to answer that question, and I actually am very interested in what Paul has to say because he is cooking full time, yeah. uh, you know, and I'm 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 more uh, I'm more cutting them up, and I'm more dealing with people who are cooking at home. I think that the perception is different with every animal. I think nobody really considers the idea of the age of their pig or aging. Uh, pork, you know, some people have mm-hmm. talked about it sort of in my esoteric meat dork circles, but <laughs> it's not a very popular thing. I think, you know, when you have, when you have like that series, uh, Chef's Table, they did the Magnus Nielsen episode, and he talked about um, aging old dairy cows, getting the meat from these old cows and aging them. Mm-hmm. Um, because he does it for a specific reason, it became part of the, the zeitgeist, you know, it became part of the this sort of idea rolling around in people's heads, well, if Magnus Nilsson does it and he has three Michelin stars, then maybe I should do it at my, my little cafe in mm-hmm. Logan Square. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, it would be great if we had a system where we could raise an old dairy cow and then, uh, you know, and then sell sell her and use her for the meat instead of whatever fate she'll, you know, she'll find. Well, I um, think we use them for meat but, now, but they, they just go into ground meat mostly. I don't think anybody eats a steak. Meat, from a, a, a lot of times they go to things, like if they're over three food. years old, a lot of times they go into like mass production, like like pet food. Well, yeah, um, we don't, we can't eat animals. I mean, we can't trade in animals that are over three years old because of BSE. And <clears throat> that would be, you know, mad cow disease. And I wanted to ask you both actually about that in terms of older animals. Aren't older animals more at risk for carrying prion diseases like um, BSE or some other unknown disease that I have not yet discovered that could be carried by an older animal? There's no risk to that? Um, there's risk in everything. <laughs> and that's, that's really the only answer that, you know, like, you know, like this whole thing that uh, that bacon causes cancer. I mean, it's, oh, it's the same answer. There's risk in everything. You know, like it could be a young, healthy animal and something bad could happen and you can get sick. It could be a really, really old animal that is 
susceptible to all kinds of strange diseases that we haven't discovered yet, and mm. nothing happens. You know, right. Right. and when we're talking everything. about prion diseases as well, realistically, what we're talking about is a is a practices problem. Yes, that's true. Not not uh, a problem that's endemic to uh, older animals. Well, that that's certainly true, but. Um... But then again, you know, since we're we're signing all these great trade agreements and we're starting to see a lot of a lot more meat moving around with um, theoretically fewer trade barriers, including potentially that 30 month or three year uh, prohib- prohibition against cattle. <clears throat> I mean, I'm I'm seeing I'm I'm foreseeing some problems with that stuff. And wh- what do you guys think about that? And we're going to start getting uh, cat, you know, meat animals from all over the world now. Not everybody has the same practices, including, um, you know, uh, adhering to the idea of not feeding uh, animal parts to other ruminants. Um, I don't know what to think about that stuff. I don't know how they're going to inspect it. I think it's going to be yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, on a on a micro level, I think it works. It works in in favor of people like Paul and myself. Mm. You know, if 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 it's all over Facebook that uh, we're getting we're getting meat from some other country and we don't know what their inspection practices are and all the all everything you just listed, then you know people will be looking for transparency in what they're eating. It's, yes. it's just the way the world is now. And when they read about Big Jones and they see that Paul buys directly from small farms. Um, then they're going to gravitate towards that. People are looking forward to cook at home, and they read about us, and I'm happy to tell them every detail about, that I know about my, my animals and how they're raised and how they're killed and mm-hmm. what they ate. And, you know, then it means business is going to get better for me because right. I'm, I'm not going to change who I buy from or where I buy from or the standards with which I, I buy animals. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how this stuff plays out. I'm, I'm just fascinated by it. I'm I'm doing a lot of research around it right now, so it's... There's a lot of questions in my mind on this. Do you think if we butcher differently, and this is a question for both of you guys, um, like in Australia, I was on a cattle trip a couple of years ago or a year or so ago, and, and um, every single cut of meat, first of all, they seam everything out. They don't cut across muscle or, you know, yeah, they don't cut across the muscles. They seam them all out. And they package them for supermarkets in a way that gives um, consumers a uh an idea or a guideline for how to cook them do you think that would make a difference to if we did that here would that make a difference to consumers and would that make a difference to do you think how much farmers could charge for their carcass for their whole carcass if people understood better how to use the whole animal i mean that's my business plan you just told me my business (laughs) yeah but what (laughs) if that business plan got translated into more places Right. I, you know, I, I think that um, in countries like Australia and in some other European countries where there's still a tradition of butcher shops and um, markets with, with a meat counter or, um, or just, you know, in, in what they eat uh, tra- traditionally, what, what the, the people in these parts of the world eat traditionally, I think it's easier to do that. I think in this, in this country, we're still at a point to where you know, the supermarket cuts are all people really expect and all, all yeah. people really know. So you could do that. You could you could get the, uh, the the processors to to break down more of these cuts, more of these European cuts, more of these steamed out cuts, and clean them up and print you know package them and put cooking directions or guidelines. Um, that's a lot of work, and the the industrial meat system all they see is labor dollars skyrocketing. Yeah. And huh. therefore, they're not going to do it because they can move, 
they can do what they're doing now. They can move tons and tons of, right. of livestock through a system that maximizes efficiency. It gives people the cuts that they think they want, the you know, pork chops and ribeyes and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, like in their mind, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Why should we... Why should we bother all of these processors to dig into the chuck of a beef and pull out the terrace major if there's only, you know, a pound and a half per animal? Well, that's true. But, Paul, what about, like, in your restaurant? Do you, are you able to um, sell through uh, cuts that might be unfamiliar to people and that they might then be more interested in trying at home? I mean, I always think of chefs as being the guys who are the leaders for consumers. I know that when I go to I a restaurant... I eat something I like. I, I want to know how to make it, and I want to try to make it myself. So, well, yeah. well, we're able to sell. We're able to successfully sell through whole hogs. And you know, when we went to um, when we went to a whole hog program, I I sort of approached it from the the Cajun tradition or the Boucherie tradition. And we looked at well, you know, how do they use a whole pig mm-hmm. and. You know, you have uh, boudin, which you make with the liver, and uh, you, you kind of also make blood boudin with the, with the blood of the animal. You make tasso with lean trim, mm-hmm. um, and dewy with fatty trim, um, and with shoulders. Uh, and you know, we have hams, and we have we you know we do brunch, so we have we don't have no tr- no trouble selling hams and and uh, and belly, and we make uh, mm-hmm. and we make head cheese, and and uh, we save the ribs. Um, and about once a month, we we have a rib night, and we and we we blow them out. We do them we do them Memphis style, and um, you know I think we don't necessarily use a lot of odd cuts because if if we you know if for instance you know there's a, there's a hanger a hanger steak on on pork just like there is on on beef, and there's yeah. you know there's inner skirts and outer skirts and all of these things that you could that you could you know theoretically do do things with. Um, that we don't that that we just don't because they can just they can just go into the sausage chopper. We use tons of andouille. Um, right, of course. Well, you have a southern style kitchen. Yeah, but but I think I think that in in any I, I think that in any instance, and I, I don't necessarily recommend most most restaurants or chefs to go whole hog because it's, <laughs> you know I did it because I wanted to you know we, we're doing a very traditionally based cuisine and I wanted to impose that discipline on sure. on our menu. Um, but I think for most people cooking today, I, I, I don't think that it's uh, I don't think that it's necessarily a good a good use of your resources or creativity, um, unless unless you want your menu to be driven by, you know, pork. I mean, my, mm-hmm. our menu is necessarily very 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 heavily pork driven. Yeah, um, sure. And and for a lot and of part chefs, of what we're doing for, at Local Foods is trying to work with people like Paul or with people who want to be more like Paul. Um, and there's lots of them out there, sir. Um, to, to say, hey, if you, if you think you want to do something that's a little more sustainable or, or if you want to go for a whole animal program, then maybe because of what we do, we can help you. So you don't have to take right. a whole pig at once. So you don't have to take a whole beef at, at one delivery. We can work out a program where, you know, you, you will get certain cuts. Like, these are all the cuts you'll get, and this is how often we can send them to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it works, you know, it works good for everybody in terms of in terms of price, in terms of practicality, and, you know, gives people time to plan ahead for certain cuts. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Well, guys, we got to wrap it up here. Um, so why don't you give people more information about the event uh, that starts tomorrow, Meat Matters, uh, sponsored by Chefs Collaborative. Where can they learn more about this and, and sign up and maybe go to one of the demonstrations or one of the uh, dinners that uh, many of your hosts are participating in? Uh, Paul, you want to take that one? 
Um, one more time. Uh, just, you know, like where can people learn more about this and, and the agenda and sign up for it? I know that one event is sold out, but maybe one of the other ones isn't yet. You're having uh, well, a yeah, demo the and demo dinner. sold out um, and then there's, there are tickets available for the dinner. And you know, I would I would encourage you to go to the Chefs Collaborative website. There's a lot of there's a lot of information there. Um, a, a great book to read right now is called Defending Beef. It came out last year by Nicolette Hahn Nyman, yeah. uh, who's a who's a vegan activist turned cattle rancher. She's, She's actually vegetarian. Phil Nyman She's out there in, in California. And the Savory Institute's website, uh, Alan Savory's doing amazing work helping people with with marginal land uh, mm-hmm. institute rotational grazing programs. And uh, and and improve the and improve their land. But yeah. definitely, uh, you know, if you're in Chicago, come out and 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 join us tomorrow night for dinner. Um, visit your local butcher like Rob and talk to them about meat because they're they're fountains of knowledge. Absolutely. Well, thanks awfully so much for you guys for uh, joining me today. I'm sorry about the sort of weird timing of it. It just worked out that way. But uh, we'll have that conversation about industrialized meat production and why it's here to stay. <laughs> Uh, especially when my book comes out. Um, and we'll be talking, I hope, again soon. Good luck with the event. And thanks so much for joining me today. And um, for you listeners out there, I have some information for you. Our, um, of course, I am the host and producer of this show. My engineer today was Liz Smith. My break music was provided by Dead Stars. The theme song to my show, which I love, is I Get By by Dead Stars. Um, my sponsor today was Eat on north and also i want to thank you all for tuning in um and to remind you that if you liked what you heard tell your friends to subscribe to the show on itunes and feel free to get in touch with us and especially me at heritageradionetwork.org we have this fancy new website you guys can load comments onto my site my show page and i really wish you would um and i also want to let you know that we are about to kick off our annual um fall fundraising drive and so um for uh my part, I would love it if some of my listeners would uh, tune into the website, plug into the website, hit the donate button and cough up that 60 bucks for your membership and know that you're helping to keep my show and all the other great shows on the air uh, for the um, future. And so uh, next up, you'll be listening to a short clip of Japan Eats, um, a wonderful program about Japanese food and restaurants in New York City. And thanks for listening. So long until next week. You know, that's one of the one, most wonderful things that I realized about Japanese culture when I started going there. Because you can, you can look at it on a macro level of the whole, the whole country. It's a, it's a we society as mm. opposed to, I consider certainly New York to be more of a me society. Mm. And by we society, I mean, it's, it seems like people have made this agreement. Okay, we all have to live together on this little island. Mm. So let's make agreements so that it all goes smoothly and we'll ways to behave that uh, will sort of lubricate the social uh, uh, contacts and mm. make things more agreeable. And people, by and large, go by that. On episode 17 of Japan Eats with Akiko Katayama, Chef Michael Romano observes that the differences between the restaurants in the U.S. and Japan are not only in the food, but in the overall culture. You don't mm. see the kind of open conflicts or conflagrations that you do here. Mm. That's classic. Like on mm. subway, you oh. know, in the morning, it's impossible. Millions of millions of people can have to get on the subway yeah. at the same time. <laughs> so they create a little system, yeah. you know, this block of people yeah. of, uh, you know, lining up. Mm-hmm. And then the train by train, they yeah. move to the they They're so good at lines. <laughs> I love it. I love it. They really understand lines. And they have now they have the... Um, 
women-only subway cars in the morning because mm, right. of the problem of you know un unwanted mm -hmm. touching, and so they the cars reserved just for women. It's mm. a cool idea. <laughs> they know how to survive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, and uh, I think you, you told me also that uh, you're surprised there's no dishwasher in Japan. In our yeah, there was no. I don't think it's atypical either. There's no dishwasher, no pot washer. So the the cooks are, are washing the pots as they go, and the someone from the dining room staff is manning the dishwashing machine mm. uh, during the service. So it's like one of the they take turns. You know? For more on New York and Japan's different values expanding into their kitchens, tune into the full episode on HeritageRadioNetwork.org and iTunes. Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit organization broadcasting over 30 live shows a week. To learn more and donate, visit our website or connect with us on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram for more. Thanks for listening.